Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating women's history and the power of women to transform our world one stitch at a time. We'll share a conversation that Scholastic Kid reporter Camille Fallon recently had with acclaimed textile artist Bisa Butler and Dr. Goldie Muhammad, an educator and the author of the best-selling Cultivating Genius. Bisa's textile portraits which are inspired by black and white photographs that she collects, tell the story of ordinary and notable black Americans. She uses the medium of quilting to interrogate the historic marginalization of her subjects while conveying their complex individuality. Bisa, who had a solo show at the Art Institute of Chicago last year, will be honored by the American Folk Art Museum this spring. It's fitting that both Bisa and Goldie approach their work as teachers. When you think about it, Women's History Month is only possible because of the vital role that teachers, many of them women, have played in American history. Bisa once taught high school art, and Goldie, who is an associate professor of language and literacy at Georgia State University, has served as a school district curriculum director and a middle school teacher. Before we hear from Bisa and Goldie, I'd like to introduce Scholastic Kid reporter Camille Fallon. Camille, who is 13 years old and lives in Virginia, is a member of Scholastic Kids Press, a team of 36 young journalists around the world who report news for kids by kids. She'll tell us what she learned from her conversation with Bisa and Goldie. Here now is Scholastic Kid reporter Camille Fallon. Hi, Miss Suzanne. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. It's just a joy to have you. So first, tell our listeners about your conversation with Bisa Butler and Goldie Mohammed and what you learned, some of the things you took away from that conversation. So first, it was just an honor speaking to Dr. Goldie and Miss Bisa. I have three main takeaways. One is that I noticed that Miss Bisa and Dr. Goldie both constructed their careers off embracing Black culture. And that just shows that there's a high demand for their work product. For Miss Bisa, it's that art displays Black history and Black contemporary figures. And recently, she's quilted figures like Tarana Burke, who coined the term Me Too, and the musician Questlove. And so they're always constructing different ways to be involved in Black culture and spread awareness on just the entire community. And second, I noticed uh, that Miss Bisa started small. She was a high school art teacher. She wasn't featured in museums nationwide like she is now. She wasn't uber successful. And what I was able to take away from that is that you don't have to be super successful to make an impact on people. She was already perfecting her craft as a high school art teacher, which I find really inspiring. And then finally, Dr. Goldie said in the interview, life is story. We are nothing but our stories and we are constantly creating. 
In my past and now, I gravitate towards stories because that's how I learn and that's how people learn. We are just naturally attracted to stories and stories about women's history and Black history are so incredibly important. And so I love that she was able to highlight that. Why are they important, Camille? Why do we need a Black History Month and a Women's History Month? What do they do for us as a, as a culture and a society? It's important because we need to dedicate time to acknowledge the contributions that women, and if we're talking about Black History Month, then Black Americans have contributed to culture and society. It's a really important opportunity that we can take to dive deeper into the history. So with Women's History Month, an example would be Rosa Parks. So we all learned about Rosa Parks in school and how she refused to give up her seat on December 1st, 1955. But what we don't learn is what was before and what became after. So before, most people don't know that she was part of the NAACP and she was steeped in the movement and trying to move the needle. And then after, she continued to be an activist throughout her entire life. She did not just stop there. She continued to fight for what she believed in. And another example is with Claudette Colvin. So she was 15 years old. And even before Rosa Parks, she did the exact same thing. She refused to give up her seat. But we don't recognize her because she was not the face of the movement at the time. And so therefore, we don't learn about it. And so it's important to make sure we have time to learn about these important historical figures, because that history plays an important role in what we see today and how our society is structured. That's really provocative and so interesting, Camille. I was thinking along those lines that BISA creates portraits that are both ordinary Black Americans and notable Black Americans. And everyone, whether we know their names or not, has an important history and has contributed in some way to our culture and to who we are. Right. Yes. Now, who are some of the women in history you admire the most and, and why? Well, I've admired many women throughout my day. <laughs> but first, the very, I think the very first woman I was inspired by was Sonia Sotomayor back when I was seven years old. I remember on, I think, my eighth birthday, I went in the class and I, would, I decided I was going to read my book to the class because at the time we couldn't bring in cupcakes and cake. And so the way that we could celebrate was by reading a book. And so I wanted to read When I Grow Up, Sonia Sotomayor, which is actually a scholastic book, which is kind of a full circle moment there. And so I was reading my book and I just found it so interesting. I was so engrossed in Sonia's story and how she started in the Bronx, but she then was able to create such an amazing career. Uh, she went to an Ivy League school and then, of course, she was a judge and she was then able to graduate to the Supreme Court. And her story is just so amazing. And then, of course, I also admired the late and great RBG. I was so saddened by her death. And I actually, when I came home, because I was out that night, when I came home, I actually commiserated with a friend who also shared a love for RBG and all the contributions she made to society and all the ceilings she broke. And actually, what's interesting is that I had my very first story on RBG. So a week to two weeks after she died, I went to DC and there was a memorial there and I was able to interview the people there. 
And I was also able to see her casket being taken to her final resting place. And so I, I loved RBG. She's amazing. And I was, I was really saddened by her death. And of course, I have to say, I admire Judge Kachandi Brown Jackson, who recently got nominated to the court, because it's just so important to have the people who look like other people in the United States be on the Supreme Court so that they can consider the different perspectives of the rest of the country. And representation is so important in that way. And so I definitely admire Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And I have to say, for our listeners who don't know, Camille talked about her first story. That was for Scholastic Kids Press for our website. And I'll never forget what a moving piece you did. You spoke with people who had gathered spontaneously at at the court to grieve the loss of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's interesting what uh, an impact she has had on our lives. Same with Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And the history is still being written about Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. So we shall see and how she affects our lives. Now, during your conversation, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you. Goldie Muhammad said, our children contain so much genius. I think you just demonstrated that, (laughs) Camille. (laughs) And Goldie's book is called Cultivating Genius. Tell us, if you haven't already shown us, what is your genius? Well, admittedly, I am still trying to find my genius, but I can confidently say that it starts with my curiosity. I am constantly asking questions about the world around me and how other people experience it because that's it's vital to the human experience. Just learning about how other people go through things and also making connections because in reality, we are all the same. And so inside the classroom and outside of the classroom, I can definitely say that it's my curiosity that drives me. Thank you so much, Camille. Thank you. I really appreciate your talking to me and and that our listeners have gotten a chance to hear you. Now, here are highlights from Camille's conversation with artist Bisa Butler and educator Goldie Muhammad. Let's start with Bisa talking about the childhood origins of her love of art, which was encouraged by her mother. I started creating portraits early on. I think when you're really young, you know, you give a kid a crayon and they're always drawing pictures. This is mommy. This is daddy. And my mom supported me with that very early. I mean, when the whole body just looks like a big circle and there's those little sticks sticking out for the arms and legs. My mother used to tell me that those were well done. So I think early on, it was her who explained to me and encouraged me to express myself creatively. And then as I got older, that idea stayed with me. My very first portrait was, well, my very first portrait that I felt captured the person and was made out of fabric was of my grandmother. And again, I was making it for her as a gift. So I would say family inspired me early on, that desire to give them something nice, and then also the desire to capture them as they are. Here is Bisa talking about the way she tells stories through her art one stitch at a time. A lot of people respond to my artwork, to my quilts, because they're familiar to us. 
before I started quilting, I was a painting major at college at Howard University. And for me, painting just didn't connect with what I wanted to say personally. And one of my teachers, his name was Al Smith. I asked him for help. I said, Al, we were allowed to call him his first name in college. I said, Al, I need help. This painting is not, none of my paintings are looking the way I want them to. I was very good at painting exactly as things look. And that style is called photorealism. So just like you're sitting there in front of your fireplace, I would paint you exactly like that. And it would be hard to tell the photograph from the painting, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted my artwork to say something about what I thought about you. I wanted my artwork to say something about who I thought you really were on the inside. What are your thoughts and dreams? And Al Smith told me, Bisa, you always wear all these funky prints. I always dress like this, even when I was in college, except for it was a little cooler. I might have a jean jacket with some kind of African print collar. And then maybe I would cut off the sleeves and make them all lace. But I was always combining different fabrics. And Al told me to go back and learn from the past. He told me to go to the National Museum. I went to school in Washington, D.C., and all the museums are free all the time. Even the National Zoo is free. So our professors would give us assignments. It wouldn't be just go look in that book. They would tell you, go to the Smithsonian of African art, go to the Smithsonian of American art, go to the National Portrait Gallery and look at these original pieces of artwork. And I went to look at the paintings and collages of an artist named Romare Bearden. And Romare Bearden was an African-American man who lived during the Harlem Renaissance. And he made all these collages using bits of ripped up paper, cut out paper. He would watercolor paint on paper and then cut that up. He used fabric, he used newspaper. He would even use bits of magazine images. And I decided, what if I collage some fabric onto my paintings. I wasn't allowed to just move away from painting altogether because my degree program was in painting. So with that, you can't just veer totally off the objective that your teacher puts for you. It was only after I got out of school that I didn't have to use the painting at all. I started putting those pieces of fabric together and then sewing them. So there was a different process, but in the end, it was through my education at Howard, through professors like Al Smith. And I want to say that Al Smith actually came over to my house because when you paint in college, my painting class was, I think it was four hours or five. But even that wasn't enough for him to see me in my own environment. So he came to my house, which was off campus, and I painted it just in my dining room. And all my roommates were walking through and talking loud and laughing. They all had um, funky clothes on, were doing other college-related things. And he saw that my environment was very alive and vibrant. They were playing hip hop and reggae. We loved artists like Bob Marley and A Tribe Called Quest. And we were very interested in 
connecting with our African heritage. And Al Smith is the one who encouraged me to be myself in my artwork and allow myself to creep into my artwork, despite what the materials that were suggested for our artwork. And Al opened that door for me. And actually, after I left Howard, I started using only fabric. And I've been doing that ever since. What do you hope people will take away from your portraits? I think that people do take away a lot already because fabric is familiar to all of us. You know, when you're sleeping in your bed, you're wrapped up in your sheets. I think the only time we don't have fabric near us or on us is when maybe when we're in the shower. But even then you might be using a washcloth. So fabric, we're in contact with it constantly and we understand it. We know what velvet looks like and feels like. Just looking at it, you have an idea of what it feels like. And you know, when do people wear velvet? And if you see lace on my artwork, when do people wear lace? What does that look like? What does that feel like? If I have a piece of denim. So I think that people take a lot from my artwork because they already understand what it's made from. If I make a portrait of somebody and they're all made of pieces of denim and then I put rough pieces of burlap sack in there and I put rough pieces of unwoven wool, you're already getting an idea that maybe the lifestyle of this person wasn't that gentle. Maybe it wasn't that easy. What do you wear? When and where do you wear jeans? But if I make a portrait of somebody made with only fine materials, like soft, light-colored lace, different chiffon, some netting, it makes you start to think, I wonder if Bisa's trying to say that this person maybe had a more refined lifestyle. Maybe they were able to wear some delicate and beautiful cloth in their lifetime. So I hope that when people look at my portraits, they start to see the inside of that person, not just what they look like, but what do they think like? What do they laugh at? Where, when did they laugh? Where were they? And a lot of my portraits, actually all of them, are of people from the African diaspora. So that can be Black Americans, um, Africans born in Africa, raised there, West Indians, um, Black Brazilians, um, Black people from the entire globe. And I want them to understand if you are Black or a person of color, I hope that you see yourself in it and you feel good about what you see. We look good. I feel good. I feel proud or that person looks like me or that person looks like someone I know. And I've even been so lucky one time in Chicago that a young woman saw my piece and she was like, that's my grandma. She was never named. Her grandma, the portrait I found it in the National Archives there were just three beautiful women. They were chatting in front of the church on Easter morning in 1941. And that was her grandma, whose name was Lois Jones and was very, very dear to her. So I got to meet her whole family in Chicago at my exhibit. And I hope that people who are not Black look at the work and they still see themselves and they realize that we are the same don't be fooled by skin color or artificial constructs of race, class, 
money. I want them to see those people in my portraits and realize like this person is a human being just like me. They wake up in the morning or they did at one point. They breathe, they laugh, they celebrate. They can be silly. They can be gentle. They can be fierce and proud. All of the layers of humanity. I want you to be able to see that in each person. During her conversation with Bisa and Goldie, Camille asked Goldie about the importance of bringing Black joy to the classroom. Goldie developed a curriculum for Scholastic Art Magazine using the culturally and historically responsive literacy model. The curriculum is called Art as Anchor Text and is designed to help students better understand and appreciate Bisa's portraits. We'll link to it in the show notes. Well, first I want to add about this idea of sewing and as curriculum. When I work with teachers all over the the globe, I, I want them to look at their curriculum and instruction like sewing a dress, right? I want them to think about the fabric. I want them to think about who they're sewing for, how it fits. It feels like a lot of curriculum has felt like a one-size-fit-all dress, and I want more creativity, more genius, more joy in it. And so when developing the curriculum from 10 selected art pieces of Bisa Butler, I wanted it to feel really special, and I wanted it to be centered on joy, Black joy and joy overall. When I think of Black history, Black liberation, Black thought, Blackness, I think genius and I think joy. That's why you keep hearing these words and you keep seeing this big smile on my face. Joy to me feels like it's something more than having fun or just celebrating, right? Joy is also like an embodiment, an elevation. It is beauty. It is the aesthetics. It is teaching our young people this in classroom. We're not just teaching them to prepare for tests. We're teaching them about beauty in themselves, in each other, and the world. Joy to me is solutions to problems. <laughs> so Black joy is really important because of a real history of misrepresentation, underrepresentation, oppression, violence, racism, folks telling us that Your language is not enough. Your mind isn't enough. Your hair isn't enough. Your skin. And it it is another reminder that we have to resist that stuff. We have to know it and resist it and, and claim and reclaim our joy. In my historical study, I found that Black people have always claimed and reclaimed their joy again and again, even when the environment was harsh and harmful and hurtful. They were still centering their love and beauty. And that's something, that's a lesson for us all, for our children. We want our children to not just celebrate, but we want them to have an embodiment of joy. It's important for us. And it's important for not just Black children to see their own Black joy, but it's important for white children to see Black joy and brown children to see Black joy and each other's joy as well. Uh, So many times in classrooms, we only teach the pain, the oppression, and we don't center the stories off with that person first. We start with what oppressors have done to them. That's not where anybody's stories begin. 
So it's almost like, Camille, you started off with this idea of the power of story. When I think of Black joy, that's where our stories begin. It doesn't start with slavery. <laughs> and where we start the story really matters. And from whom, whose perspective, right? So I just want to say, when I think of Black joy, I think of all those things. We only get to joy when there is an intention and an action to resist something harmful. So I don't know, Camille, if you've ever had a bad day as a middle schooler. I'm guessing you have because I certainly remember middle school. And sometimes like if a person is feeling down and somebody's trying to cheer them up and you're telling yourself, no, I want to be sad. I want to be upset. Like joy cannot fully enter. And joy is like that with the whole of the society. When we work toward anti-racism, anti-oppression, justice, that's when we can fully capture, experience, and embody joy. So writing, art, music, creation has always been an expression of Black joy. That's why, again, I'm thankful for Visa's work because she gave us many layers of joy and of her art through music and through quilting. There are layers there of resistance, beauty, and joy together at the same time. Quilting has traditionally been marginalized, thought of primarily as the work of women, and thus not worthy of interest or elevation. Bisa is altering that view in a radical way. I suppose what would give me power is just being brave enough to say that I want to be a professional quilter. When I started quilting, it was not thought of as fine art. Actually, at Howard, it was kind of frowned upon to pull away from canvas altogether because a canvas meant fine art and a quilt was looked at something that was old fashioned something that was done on the plantations, something that was done out of necessity, where I suppose art was looked at something that you do as a vocation of leisure, but not of need and desperation, the need to stay warm. And I visited a museum when I was in grad school and I saw the quilts of G's Bend up on the wall. They were at the Whitney Museum. And the quilts of G's Bend, the G's Bend quilters are a group of women, mostly women, who created quilts for their warmth. And there was a a man, he was interested in art, and he went to this community in Alabama, and he asked these women, he saw these beautiful quilts, first of all, that looked like the most amazing art he had ever seen, and asked them, can I take these and exhibit them in a museum? And that's what happened. And when I saw those quilts up on the wall, I thought, well, I could be a professional quilter and I could make a life out of this. At the time, I didn't understand that that gentleman did not pay those women very well, if much at all. They weren't necessarily compensated appropriately for the work that they were doing. But the act of putting their work those quilts that were meant for warmth and for the bed on the wall was a step that the women had never considered. And they started seeing themselves as art, as artists. And when I saw their work, I saw them as these fantastic, amazing artists. And it gave me the strength to say, if they can do it, then so can I. 
And so I hope that when other people see me quilting professionally, the kids who are watching right now, maybe you all will feel, I can do that too. I can take something that other people say can't be done. Or they say that that's not professional or that's not, that's not acceptable to us and be brave and do that thing anyway. We tend to think of history as something that is behind us, that is in the past. But history also informs our present and our future. We're so lucky that we can see the work of a timeless artist like Bisa as it evolves. We'll close this episode with Bisa explaining what comes next for her. I'm actually working on some new things now, but I see my work constantly evolving. I think it's really important never to be stuck in life. My father is 83 and he's always reading and learning new things and getting into new things. My work in the past has been primarily vintage photographs. So if you look at them, if you know the date of the photo, or even if you look at the way people are dressed, you can see that it's not of now. And lately I've been very interested in what's happening now. I'm so inspired by the images that we see on the internet and on the TV every day. We're living in a very tumultuous time where it's almost like the past and the future are colliding. Some people are, some people are determined to go back to the past. Some people are trying to push forward and make new futures. We're seeing reenactments on the news of things that we never thought we'd see again. So I feel like it's important for me to pay attention to what's happening now, because clearly the lessons of the past were not learned and we are repeating them. So how to fix that? how to make sure that people in the future can look back and see us and realize that there were people who cared and who wanted change in a positive way and who wanted people to be respected and loved and cared for all people. I want them to see that there are plenty of people out here who are not concerned about whether or not somebody is worthy, if they are rich or if they are struggling, if they're black, if they're white, if they're old, if they're young, and even respect for those who have passed on, that we respect all aspects of humanity from the living and the unliving, that there are people who have that spiritual sense as well. My great thanks again to Scholastic Kid reporter Camille Fallon for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Bisa Butler and Goldie Mohammed, and to access Art as Anchor Text, a mini curricular collection for teachers that Goldie developed for Scholastic Art Magazine, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.